This week on the Rock and Roll Ghost podcast, we're talking to Charlie Clouser, uh, well-known from his past work with Nine Inch Nails, uh, also now a uh, composer for the last 20 or so years now. Uh, he's promoting the new entry in the Saw franchise, Spiral, which is was supposed to come out last year, but it's finally coming out in a, a few weeks, starring Chris Rock, uh, Samuel Jackson, and uh, expected to be probably a big deal, I'm guessing, when it does come out. How are you doing today, Charlie? I'm good. How are you doing, Brett? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So, first off, you've been, you've been doing the Saw movies for a while, uh, since the second one, right? Yeah, since the first one. First oh, one first one. Oh, three or so, I think I started working on it. So, okay, 18 years in and no signs of slowing down yet. So, what, what about, I guess... I mean, it's just interesting to see the same composer come back, you know, for all the films. Uh, how, how, I mean, how does that even happen, number one? And how did you get involved with it to begin with? Well, I, I, I mean, the, those two questions are actually, the, the answer is kind of interwoven because um, when I first got in contact with uh, James Wan and Lee Winnell about the very first Saw movie, you know, it was sort of an uh, a indie horror movie. It wasn't like some global phenomenon like it turned into. Right. And they had had, they had put together a temp music score using not orchestral music so much, but using like gritty music, some industrial music, even some pieces from uh, industrial acts like uh, Einster's End and Neubaten with this like clattering, crashing metal percussion. And they really wanted to have they didn't want to have sort of a traditional horror movie score or like a very orchestral type of score. They wanted to have gritty industrial elements and sort of hard programmed beats and that sort of thing. <clears throat> so that was, you know, I was a good fit for that because I was just coming off of so many years of making records in that vein. Right. And, uh, you know, I think part of the reason that I've been back for all of the sequels was that I, I painted, I painted the score into a corner by using a certain kind of category of sounds and a certain approach that wouldn't have been maybe so easy to just swap in, you know, your, your basic Hollywood A-list orchestral composer. Um, you know, the producers like to, to say that the, the score has become kind of a minor character in the movies because it has a recognizable tone and it sort of has a recognizable face that they wanted to keep that as a con continuous part of, of the, the franchise as it went on. And, you know, as various directors have rotated in and out of the, of the franchise, I've changed my approach and the instruments I use and the sort of the the general approach to fit the visual style of the different directors. Um, but there's always been some continuity. There's some sounds that I created for the first movie using these bowed metal instruments that create these sort of roaring haunted tones that kind of became almost a character of their own. Like when you'd hear this certain sound, you knew that something was something bad probably was going to happen. And of course there's the theme that appears at the end of the first movie that in the first movie was called Hello Zep, that kind of became the trademark at the end of all of the movies. Some version of that piece of music always occurs at the end of the movies. And it's sort of a signal to the audience that, okay, now the twist ending is going to be revealed. So pay attention. Yeah. Um, and it just, you just feel blessed to be 
to be in that position where you basically are the de facto composer and uh, where were you at head headspace wise when you thought that the series was basically over with the previous one? Well, it's sort of like it's it it seems like it's died a thousand deaths almost because yeah. the the first movie when the big twist ending is revealed, I sort of my reaction was how are they ever you know that that's kind of locking preventing any possibility of any sequels because mm. that big surprise at the end of the first movie kind of spilled all the beans. And so I was, you know, uh, I was definitely pleasantly surprised to see how the writers and producers had been able to peel back more layers of the story. And, you know, some of the sequels have been sort of backstory elements of stuff that happened before the first Saw movie. Some have been sort of spinoff elements where there's, you know, copycat killers, like in the Jigsaw movie that came out a couple years ago. And so they're they've been endlessly uh, ingenious at figuring out new ways to find storylines based around that central character that was first revealed in the first one. Yeah. Well, to me, it's interesting that this got revived because of Chris Rock of all people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the story is that he, 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 what he met a, the Lionsgate, you know, exec and, and said, I got this idea and, blah 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 there you go it's like then they're making a, a saw movie that's fan and i think it's fantastic that that he was a fan of the of the franchise and had this good idea for how to carry it forward without sort of rinsing and repeating stuff that's come before and yeah. i think you know i think audiences are going to be pleasantly surprised at his approach and his way to twist the storyline but also his performance in this thing it's great to see him playing it dead serious you know, he's this isn't like Chris Rock riffing on one liners. This is him uh, yeah. under duress for sure in a lot of the movie. And he's really proving in this film that uh, that he's got more than maybe the audience is expecting. Yeah, he's had a few roles where it wasn't necessarily uh, comedic. And I think he's moving that way more as he's getting older. I mean, he just uh, I haven't watched it yet. I've been meaning to watch the whole thing, but the newest season of Fargo I heard he was really good at. Yeah. He's uh, great in it. Yeah. I'm really and I'm especially excited because I, I keep forgetting that they filmed some of it in my hometown, which is hilarious. Uh it, our, my hometown is that old looking where they can go back to the whatever 30s or 40s or whatever. Right. Um, but um well you know just you finished this had to be well over a year ago now, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. So you you were done before the, the lockdown happened, correct? minutes before it and you right. know we were we literally i had finished it finished all my deliveries on like a wednesday or something and was making sure that during the sound mix they were completely done and they didn't need any more little molecules of sound added to the score and we were my wife and i were supposed to be on a plane for australia of all places like four or five days later and it lockdown occurred in between finishing the movie and us getting on a plane. So needless to yeah, say, yeah. we never got on that plane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is probably maybe for the best too. Yeah. Who knows? Um, so you didn't have any, any, have you had to do anything with the film since, uh, since the lockdown? I mean, has it always, have they just kept the film locked as it is? Yeah. They haven't made any changes. And I think it was, kind of smart of them to not just sort of throw up their hands and dump it onto HBO Max or Video On Demand um, and to just 
hold the line and hold out for when theaters are going to reopen because, you know, especially uh, a Saw movie is the kind of thing that's much more fun to see in the theaters uh, yeah. with, you know, a room full of screaming people. And apparently yeah, yeah. they're doing an IMAX release as well. So if people want to get the full impact, that's going to be an option as well. So I'm that's kind of awesome. psyched that they, that they took that path. That's cool. Uh, how, how was it? You've worked with the director of, of Spiral on a bunch of the other songs, Darren, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how, how is working with him different from working with, say, anybody else? That well, theories? you know, Darren's got a, 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 a very, you know, like James and James and Lee are sort of old school horror aficionados who really have like deep they're deep to the culture of like italian b movie horror slasher films from the 70s and all that mm -hmm. and darren's approach is a little more i don't know if if gothic is the right word but there's some element of sort of grandeur in his visual style sometimes and the way he frames some shots and so that kind of changes how you can approach the music side to respond to the to the imagery that he puts together, and that was more apparent perhaps in some of the sequels that he directed in the middle of the franchise, where he'd have these sort of, you know, I I can only say gothic type of settings where there'd be you know a body hanging and rays of light coming from behind it, and so I would respond to that in the score by using elements that I wouldn't have used it for. A, for a different visual portrait, you know, like oh. choir sounds and things that aren't really part of the normal saw musical vocabulary, but were, but fit with his visual style. So, and, you know, Darren is endlessly enthusiastic about the franchise and about the way in which the score can kind of, can, can help add to that sense of, fanfare almost when there's a reveal of a body hanging or something like that so yeah. it's, it's an easy collaboration because you can never go too far when when darren's behind the wheel gotcha uh what are what, what do you feel the differences are between working say um with with the saw franchise and working on the american horror story franchise uh what i mean it, it, every season's a different thing too so you're re constantly reshaping the the soundtrack you know for it too well keep in mind all i did for american horror story was the main title theme and the underscore was done for many years by james uh, and then later by uh matt quayle oh I, I apologize i thought you i thought you were worked on i thought you worked on the scores for for a few of them oh it would have been nice but <laughs> and the 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 theme had an interesting story because it was a piece of music that was that started as a demo done in a college dorm room by a guy named Caesar Davila Irizarry after he had seen the movie Seven, which had an opening credit scene with right. a, a Nine Inch Nails remix done by Peter Christofferson of Coil, which right. barely resembled the original Nine Inch Nails song it's, at all. It's it a just, brilliant it's, remix. It's amazing. And it's just these gritty, distorted sounds and these almost chainsaw-like musical textures. And apparently the, the, the folklore is that Caesar had seen this movie, you know, when, when it first came out and went back to his dorm room or his apartment or whatever. And using the crude technology of the time made this really cool, interesting piece of music cut to 20 some years later when American horror story is just get, getting under production. And 
one of the visual editors who was helping to put together the main titles for the show had this track from of Caesars. They were friends and he had this track kind of in his music library. And, uh, you know, the the producers were saying we want to have it. We want to have a gritty feel similar to the opening credits of the movie seven. And so the visual editor said, you know, I have this piece of music. Um, it's just a scratchy demo, but it's got some real character and a good vibe. And they put that in as just a rough temp to kind of edit their images to. Then right. as, as it was coming together, they contacted me because of partly because of my scoring experience, but also because I had been involved in Nine Inch Nails in that time period yeah. and can you come up with something similar we like the vibe of this track but we don't have this the individual tracks or the stems or the splits it'd be difficult for us to use this actual mix and we want to enhance it and change some elements can you take a swing at it so i took four swings at it trying to get closer and closer trying to get closer and closer to the vibe of the of this demo that caesar had done and in the end, wound up creating a hybrid piece of music that used elements that I extracted using, you know, computer wizardry and magic in software to right. isolate and extract some of the elements from his original demo and then rebuild other elements so that we could have the tracks all split out and so forth. And so the, the end result of the main titles for American Horror Story is very much a hybrid of Caesar's original work from decades ago. Wow. And... Uh, then, of course, as the series went on, we would, as each season had a new kind of theme for that season, we would make change, slight changes to the theme and okay. add an element here and there just so that it fit with the character of that season's uh, theme. And uh, But the original core elements go back way back to into ancient history, into the 90s with whatever yes. Caesar did in his apartment or dorm room or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they're working more because of it. Yeah. Yeah. And cool. it's, it's just fun because it was, a, you know, it was a track that he did and didn't put, didn't release it as a record or, you know, it was just something he did for fun yeah, and yeah. personal enjoyment, but it really struck a chord with, uh, with the producers. And they were like, you know, even though I was trying to create these new grandiose versions that had nothing to do with his original demo, in the right. end, they kept coming back and saying, you know, there's something really cool. There's a really cool vibe about what he had done so many years ago, and that's yeah. what we wound up keeping. That's fascinating. That, that might be what the going in each season and uh, reworking the, the title uh, might be why I assumed you, you had more to do with with each, each of the series. And of course, oh. Mac and James Levine also, as as the series went on, I would make some changes to the themes and then give them the elements and then they could extract bits from their scoring work for that yeah. season and add it to, to give a more sort of sense of continuity, I think. Makes sense, makes sense. Um, am I missing other other films you've done or other things you've composed for? Uh, uh, I, I, I did a, a whole lot of TV. Um, yeah including sort of, you know, FBI procedural dramas like this series Numbers that was uh, on CBS. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then there was a, a really cool little series on Fox that I did a couple years ago called Wayward Pines, which was, oh. it was almost, it was a, a, another kind of unusual story because I came into the project not having read the books that the show, series was based on. Right. And as is often the case these things are done in a fantastic hurry so it was sort of like we <laughs> met the people on a thursday and started working on it the next day kind of thing and all i had seen was the first episode which 
and I was immediately hooked because the cast was so great. You had, you know, Matt, we had Matt Dillon and Juliette oh, yeah. Lewis and Terrence Howard and Toby Jones and Melissa Leo and just like a great cast of actors that are just maybe a little left of center, but really yeah, yeah. on the screen, you know? Yeah. And I had only seen the very first episode, which was kind of, it had a Twin Peaks kind of vibe. It's a little right. mountain town where everybody's in on something. And Matt Dillon arrives in the town and has a, he's a secret service agent chasing counterfeiters. And he has a car crash and he kind of wakes up in this little town and everything is sketchy and he can't quite figure out what. And as the series goes on, it turns out that there's sort of time travel involved and mutant wow. creatures outside the wall and like a, a very large and expansive kind of sci-fi storyline. But in the very first episode, none of that stuff is revealed. So as I was scoring the first episode, I was kind of creating this claustrophobic little world of this weird little town. No epic, you know, zombies climbing up the wall kind of music at all. Right, and right. then after the story, as we got a little deeper into it and the storyline became clear and I was adding these more sort of battle kind of pieces of music to accompany this big action that was occurring. I remember having a conversation with the producers and saying, oh, you know, I wish I'd known the entire scope of this thing because <laughs> then I wouldn't have made this the first couple of episodes be this little claustrophobic world. And they said, no, 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 that's it actually worked out great because it's sort of a bit of a twist. We were luring we we were luring people in with this claustrophobic soundscape that then kind right. of opened up as the storyline did. And I thought that that was very wise of them to uh, to not tell me don't forget to do something epic even in the first episode because it yeah, did yeah. create that sense of of a of a little bit of a twist well you have to kind of you know i i didn't i didn't until now i didn't really ever think about how that in a way to make make projects nowadays surprising for everyone you sort of have to be a little uh clandestine you know perhaps even with the talent involved because it's like the last thing if there was anything I hate more, and, and maybe in this case I could have used it because I remember Wayward Pines, but I never watched it, even despite the cast, because I was like, I don't know what the hell this show's about. Uh, and I don't think it lasted very long, which didn't help, because it's like, if there's one thing I hate is network shows that start off with something intriguing, and then nobody watches it except me. And like they, so they abandon it, and like, well, what the hell happened? I'm like, I, like we, I got 10 episodes, I'm hooked. You know, it's like... Well, and that's kind of what happened. You know, Wayward Pines was originally just going to be a 10 episode chunk dealing with the first book in this three book series. Right. And that was it was just going to be that. And it they actually had written the, all the scripts for the that first 10 episode run with a very definite ending. Um, yeah. And it it ends. And you think at the, after that 10th episode, you're like, well, that that was a wrap because um, certain people are certain characters are dead and they're not coming back. But then, be, and originally the show was going to be on like FXX or something, you know, channel 940. Right, but right. It, it actually, once we got a couple episodes in the can, the 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 network bigwigs were like, this is actually coming out maybe better than we thought and more kind of possible to be a mainstream series. So they did put it on Fox and as a, as a sort of normal non-cable kind of series. And it did well enough that they thought, okay, great. What about seasons two and three? And then the writers had to sort of scramble to adapt 
the other books in the series and to also deal with the fact that some of the stars characters had been killed off so they did we did extra seasons but they were uh, with a slightly different cast, you know, some people okay. were dead and couldn't come back, but some of the of the excellent actors like Melissa Leo and Toby Jones were, their characters hadn't died yet. So they were able to continue with some of the great actors that uh, we had loved so, from the first season. So how many seasons actually got completed? I, th- I think we only did two seasons. I'd have to I'd have to check my records, but I believe it was two full seasons of ten wow, episodes I each. Had no idea. Okay, now I got to go check it out. It's it's, it's really cool. At and the you know, very least, there's two seasons. Yeah, it's enough that you're not going to be left hanging too bad when the first okay. season ends. And you know, Matt, I've always liked Matt Dillon because oh, Matt Dillon's cool. He's you know when because I remember watching him you know when he was like a teenage actor and 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 thinking this guy's great but i and i was pleasantly surprised as over the years he didn't kind of go with the like hunky hollywood handsome actor route he would pick these projects that were kind of you know very much left to center whether it was drugstore cowboy or you know other movies that maybe weren't what you'd expect from somebody like that and so i was super happy and juliette lewis i think she's always great from yeah. natural Born killers and cape fear onwards so as soon yeah, as people yeah. like that are on the screen i'm like okay yeah i'm i'm in okay all right well i god i apologize i didn't notice that part in your uh <laughs> your career listing because I, I that was i do remember that show i just and i also had it in my head that it didn't even make a season for some reason so i don't know being network tv are a little sketchy but did you end up doing all both seasons yep okay mm-hmm. good all right, cool. How do you, how does TV work uh, differ from doing film? You know, it's the thing about all film work that I've done, except Saw, is that it's a one-off thing, and you can build this sonic world, um, and you can build it to a giant climax, and then slam the door on it, and you don't have to worry about how you're going to reinterpret musical themes on episode nine or whatever. And of course, when you're doing uh, any kind of series work, then you you want to bear in mind that you're uh, attaching either certain musical themes or chord patterns or melodies, or even just certain sounds to a given character or place. And then you kind of have to keep these things handy and find a way to reinterpret them and make them fresh so you're not just sort of copying and pasting stuff whenever a given place is shown you might have a theme right. for you know the headquarters of the fbi or the the you know the dragon's castle whatever it might be right and of course with the saw movies that's almost been like doing a series because we're we're at nine of them now that's almost yeah that's a, a you lot. know that's almost a season of of an hbo series so the same kind of mentality uh has applied with the Saw franchise that there's certain sounds and musical themes that get attached, at least in my mind, to a place or a character or a time period, and that you can then refer to those later. You obviously have to reinterpret them and kind of reuse the musical data, but in a fresh piece of music, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, something that that is very much in evidence in things like in Game of Thrones, the way that the musical themes develop and change, but there's a consistent thread through it. So there's never, you're never going to wonder what series you're watching because the music helps to take you to that place. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, what what is it? What have you been working on in the past year? Um, well, a lot of construction. <laughs> There's like scaffolding and stuff here at my You're house. You're doing it yourself? No, 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 no. Oh. Not that I can't. I can barely drive a, a hammer and nail straight. There but, you go. Uh, Doing a little bit of construction and renovation on the on the studio area and on the house in general, and also working on uh, the first time I've ever done this, but an actual uh, a, a sample library product that other composers can use, and it is oh. at the moment uh, still top secret because there's no uh, release date set. It'll probably be coming out this summer, and I'm sure there will be some massive PR blitz uh, related yeah. to that. And it was a long process because, you know, as you're if you're creating sounds for yourself, you can overlook a lot of uh, rough edges that wouldn't fly when something is going to be released as a commercial product. Because the day after the thing comes out, everybody's going to be on one of the forums going, you know, I was listening to these samples and I heard this little click at the end of this one Tom Tom sample or, you know, so you have to perfect and, and sand down all the rough edges for some commercial product like that in a way that, that I never have had to do for when I'm just recording sounds for my own use. So uh, in the, on the one hand, it was, uh, it turned into a lot more work than I originally thought. But I had a lot of help, and uh, I'm excited to see it hit the world and let everybody else get a get a taste of some of these sounds. How long were you working on that? You know, on and off. I, I didn't work continually on it because there's a bit of back and forth with the uh, the company that's developing and releasing it. So I would do a spurt of work and then let them chew on the material for a while, and then they'd come back and say, "Okay, now the next phase." Almost like doing a video game, you know, right. where you where you don't do it in one mad dash like on a film score um, right. but you do a chunk of work and then they say okay we're gonna have to insert these assets into the game engine and work on it for we'll get back to you in two months and then right. two months go by and and then you're trying to re remember what did i what was i do how did i do that even <laughs> and you're trying right, to right, hoping right. that you've saved all the files in a very organized manner and uh, <laughs> i bet you have a lot of hard drives oh my god yeah, data. Yeah, if the the short answer to the question of what did I do for the past year is backup hard drives. <laughs> Good lord, that must be. I mean, I, I know it's so much easier now than like tapes or you know tape reel to reel and all that. But still, you still have to have a whole library of hard drives. Yeah, it's an infrastructure and organizational issue. For sure. It takes up yeah. a lot less space than, you know, a storage facility full of uh, multi-track analog tapes, but the ha the level of hassle is still there. Right, right. Do you have backups of your of your hard drives? Oh, my gosh. So many. Uh, across <laughs> one at my, you know, I, I, I have a set at my sister's house in Vermont and a set, <laughs> three sets at the house and another set in a safe deposit box in a bank. So if there's a brush fire that, you know. I'm definitely so paranoid just, about that. Do you just buy in bulk at this point? Oh, at this point, it's like I, I have to have a, a, a I'm, I'm almost at the point where we have to use barcode stickers and a little barcode reader right. to keep track yeah, you of You probably, probably could just uh, have to end up doing that. That would probably be a lot easier. Okay. <laughs> I'm almost at that point. Don't tell There you go. <laughs> um, let, let me ask you about one thing that just because I, I remember – you know, and this was semi-recently, um, and just maybe you could shed some light on on why this turned out the way it did. Uh, obviously, Nine Inch Nails were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Some members 
obviously there's been a lot of members over the years. Some members yep. were inducted with Trent. Some weren't. You were left out of that, correct? Right. And I not to pour salt into a wound, but just do you know why some people were and some well, weren't? I think, you know, I did when, when the when I when it was first announced that Nine Inch Nails being nominated, we all because I'm still in close contact with a lot of my bandmates from those years, and uh, we all just assumed it would be Trent or Trent and Atticus who are quote Nine Inch Nails at this point. Right, right. Um, but it was Trent who went to the to the Academy or whatever it is, the Hall of Fame committee, and said, "Look, I don't want to. I don't want it to just be." me or me and Atticus because part a big part of the reason that the band is well known and being inducted is because of the live performances and and all the touring and that is involved an you know an ever-changing cast of characters and I he did actually contact me and say look man I, I want you to be a part of that thing and I was like fantastic and then apparently there's sort of you know I don't know if it's really codified or anything but there's kind of a, a, a some kind of limit in place where the, the hall of fame doesn't want to have you know 75 x members everybody who was ever a guitar player for seven gigs on a one leg of a tour kind of right. thing and right. so they they had to kind of come to some way of figuring out who it's going to be and i as near as i can tell it was basically the lineup that that was in the band when they performed at woodstock in 94 that with the, the infamous muddy performance, right? Yeah, Which yeah. was when that was, you know, an early time when Nine Inch Nails made a big splash outside of their niche. And so that lineup, and then the lineup that uh, is currently the live touring lineup. Yeah. And they've been, and I, they've been together a long time too. As well, exactly. So. And I had joined the band about two or three months after that infamous Woodstock performance. So, uh, you know, right. In the words of Don Adams from Get Smart, it missed me by the <laughs> And, you know, and I did, I was in communication with Trent at that time. He said, look, man, I was rallying. I wanted to, if, and at one point when there was, before COVID, there was going to be, you know, the usual Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And he said, look, I want you to be there anyway, if you want to come, if, if, that, if that's weird or sucks, don't bother, but I would like you to come and be a yeah, part yeah. of that. And he did, you know, obviously the, the, the ceremony didn't happen in person because of COVID, but th in their little video presentations, I was, you know, heartened to see the trend immediately gave me a shout out. It's sort of at the beginning of his speech and with, along with other members who were, as he as he put it, an important part of the band, but for reasons unexplained are not technically being inducted yeah, and yeah, i yeah. kind of you know to be fair look it's been 20 plus years since i left the band so yeah, yeah. i wasn't uh you know it wasn't hard it would have been cool but i wasn't like heartbroken or no or no I, and i and i get i get that there has to be some sort of i again like you said you can't have 75 people yeah. you know like people like richard patrick who were you know in the in, in the touring band in there in the beginning weren't, weren't in there either so you know, and I, I'm sure there are a couple other people that, you know, I, I, I forget his name, but there was the the drummer that was on the original tour who passed away. You know, he's not listed in there either, but he was a pretty big part of the beginning of the band. So, yeah. you know, it's just. And I mean, I, I understand the reasoning behind saying, OK, it's the Woodstock lineup and then yeah. it's the Today lineup. And at least yeah, it yeah. wasn't uh, that that announcement didn't make me think, how the hell did they get that, you know? It yeah, yeah. kind of made sense and it's yeah, it's yeah. fine 
you know. No, I get it. I just I was just curious because I didn't see really any um, thought process behind the decision. I figured it wasn't it wasn't going to be Trent. It was if it was going to be anybody, it was going to be the Hall. So that makes right. complete sense. <laughs> exactly. It, it was definitely not the Hall saying. Okay, Trent, give us a list of who you want included, and him going, "Well, right. fuck this guy, and fuck that guy, and fuck that right, guy." Right, right, right. You know, right. Definitely not that. So yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I generally had it in my head is that the hall, the hall's a kind of a sketchy place, anyways. Let's you know, kind of let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, and we're we're really starting to run out of people to to put in there. <laughs> I, I think uh, from from fairly recent memory, you know, we're gonna have to get all the people that you know, like cheap trick and stuff that, you know, we've been wanting to get in there for a while if, to, for it to matter or anything, but it's really going to lose its steam pretty and soon. There's, you know, there've been, I think it might've been the same year that nails got in. I think it was, uh, you know, the Doobie brothers or someone and yeah, like, yeah. Okay, Doobie brothers has like, there's like 14 members that I can name off the top of my right, head, right. but there was only three who were part of the induction ceremony. So there's obviously some, right. you know, it's never like, Okay, everybody who was <laughs> attention shoppers, everyone yeah, yeah, who was yeah. ever a member of the Doobie Brothers, please report to the stage. It's right. you know, it's super so jam. Exactly. <laughs> super jam. <laughs> um, well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but um, I, I do want to kind of get into why. Why do you feel that? I, it, do you feel that horror is your, I guess, uh, niche? As a composer, poser at this point, are you looking to branch out? I mean, I like that, you know, obviously the kind of approach I have to sounds and the weird guitar textures and bowed metal instruments and all that stuff that I am a fan of, they haven't, that's a natural kind of fit for horror movies. They're scary sounds, they're dark, they're evil. And so that absolutely makes sense. And but I, a lot of the movies that I love um, and would love to take a stab, more of a stab at are kind of outside of that ballpark a little bit. And, you know, there's one movie that I always mention to people because I loved the score and loved the movie. And it was this movie called The International, which had Clive Owen and Naomi Watts. Oh, yeah. And it was sort of like international, it was Interpol agents chasing crooked world bank people. And it wasn't like, it wasn't a movie that set the world on fire by any means, um, but it was just cool. And it was one of those, you know, edge of your seat thrillers when it's just Interpol agents chasing international criminals. But the score was really cool and very minimal, but very effective. And, uh, and it was done by uh, a guy named Reinhold Heil, and his partner, Johnny Klemek, and in collaboration with the director, Tom Tickworth. Those three had teamed up and did this movie a long time ago called Run, Lola, Run. Which right, right, right. Movie. It was sort of this, you know, almost a real-time adventure of this girl, right. you know, blasting through Berlin. Uh, and the, those three had teamed up for that, which was, I think, one of Tom's first movies. And over the years, Tom's you know, prowess got greater. And this, he did this movie, the international where there's a shootout at the Guggenheim museum in New York. And there's, you know, they're in Istanbul and they're in New York. And it was a, a big movie in terms of it yeah. looked expensive. It felt expensive. And the score was just really great. And because of 
that was that was an example of something that was it was a very uh, there was a lot of electronic elements and a lot of the kind of it wasn't sort of John Williams orchestral fanfares that I would listen to and go, well, I have no idea how to do that. It was the kind of movie where I, I was watching. I was going, see, I that's the kind I know how to do that kind of thing. That's that would be more intriguing. And to be fair, I have had an, uh, enough uh, side roots in my scoring career to to dip my toe into that type of thing more into movies right. that aren't strictly in the horror vein like uh you know the movie death sentence with uh kevin bacon which also was a james wan movie from a few years back and it was sort of a revenge picture sort of like almost like a john wick or that movie nobody that just came out that kind oh, of yeah, thing yeah. it was sort of a yeah, yeah. there was no horror elements really there was violence sure but it was a you know a real world setting no supernatural anything and it was a a revenge pick so that was a nice uh you know detour to be able to do something that wasn't it was bad people doing bad things but it wasn't like supernatural and it wasn't evil genius kind of movies so that was yeah, yeah, a, yeah. one uh, one spot where i was able to dip my toe outside of the horror pool so how does that work being you know are you consider yourself primarily a film composer now or or how, how do you consider yourself uh, i i I like both film and TV first, you know, the, a lot of the reasons that I was discussing earlier where, you know, on film, sometimes you have the opportunity when it's not some franchise, you have the opportunity to create some musical world and go down some dusty trail trying to create sounds and a, and a vibe, which you don't have to worry about how to replicate it later. You can, so basically you can make a mess in the studio and you can create a whole bunch of sounds which are difficult to make and take way too much time and effort to, to create um, and not have to worry about how you're going to do it again next week. But on the flip side, doing a, a series lets you kind of refine and perfect the ideas as you go on. And you might, you know, sort of toss off a couple of quickies in the first couple of episodes because you're pressed for time. And then later you can kind of revisit that stuff and peel back the layers and, try to refine it and expand upon it. So it's, right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy giving up either side of that. I, I kind gotcha. of like both for different reasons. Yeah. Well, well, I guess I had an initial question and I asked you that, but how, how does it work to get, to actually get work? Do you use an agent? Do they kind of like send, send your stuff out to, Exactly. The people. You know, a lot of composers do, uh, if you're reading on forums and stuff and, and reading blogs by different composers and interviews, a lot of times it's like, well, you got to you gotta go to Sundance every year and go to the composer's workshop that BMI puts on as part of the Sundance Institute. And there's a lot of resources for kind of getting out there uh, right. where young composers can meet young directors and collaborate on their early projects and form relationships that will work for them over the years, you know? Right. And, but my approach, because I had, by the time I started uh, scoring with the first Saw movie and with the TV series as I was doing in the early 2000s, by that point, I was already, you know, 15 plus years into a music career and right. had, and I did have a relationship with an agent who, basically they they know he knows all my music intimately and so he's the one who's kind of 
you know, hearing the scuttlebutt about a new series that might be in development at Netflix or right. a new movie that's just been greenlit over at Screen Gems or whatever. And so, and he, because he's got a lot more experience and years in the business than I do, he'll know kind of the, the personnel involved and he'll know, you know, this guy who's one of the producers on this movie that's coming up he had previously done these other movies and they've worked with these kind of composers so knowing that the he'll go through my library of of music and pick things that he thinks are going to be targeted or going to be well targeted to those people so he's able to use his knowledge of the people involved uh, and music in general and what music they may have used on previous projects to kind of pick the right stuff. For, if it was me going through my library of 8,000 pieces of music, it would take me a month to just even <laughs> to, yeah. to put a submission together because I'd be wondering and I'd be manually researching like, who has these people worked with before? What kind of music do they typically use on their projects? And, right. and so it's great to, to be working with an agent who that's all he does because he didn't also just have to stay up till three in the morning finishing the score album for spiral or whatever right gotcha gotcha well i, I just have a couple couple quick ones and then I'll, sure. I'll, I'll let you go but uh so you grew up in ohio but you moved to california how many years ago well pennsylvania and vermont same oh. difference. and uh, why, why I, I apologize I, I swear i saw ohio well, Cle Cleveland was the base for Nine Inch Nails for a long time. No, um, no, that was yeah. I, I thought it was. I thought that's where you came. But I had, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania and Vermont and went to college in Massachusetts. But I came. I first came to California in uh, nineteen ninety, I think. And oh, that's pretty long ago. And yeah, and that was I was following. Um, a guy who had a, an Australian film composer who had hired me when I lived in Manhattan to be the, to do the sound design and drum programming and synth stuff on his scores for the final season of the old CBS TV series called the equalizer, which okay, now yeah. is back. Uh, but the original version of that was originally scored by Stuart Copeland from the police. Right. Right. He had to do a tour or something and they, he wasn't available for the third season of the show. So this Australian guy who I had known from like when I worked in a music store years before, um, he hired me to work on that score with him and then brought me with him out to California to do more projects like that. And when I was out here, that's when I first started meeting up with, uh, you know, bands like Rob Zombie uh, and Prong and eventually Nine Inch Nails and got sucked yeah, into yeah. that whole world for a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You also worked with uh, Paige from Helmet as well, yep. because with Helmet had played as a, they had opened up for Nine Inch Nails on on some leg of some tour, and we just kind of hit it off. I was always a huge fan of Helmet and just loved their whole approach, and we became friends and we collaborated on the Helmet album Size Matters, which was right. came out. We finished. We had started that while I was still in Nine Inch Nails and based in New Orleans. And then after I left and returned to L.A. in 2001, we knuckled down and finished that sucker. Yeah, I remember I got to see uh, Helmet at a Warped Tour in, I believe, the 2000s. And mm -hmm. I had never seen them live before. And man, I mean, I wasn't a huge Helmet fan. I liked a few songs. But, man, they just they were one of the acts. That Joan Jett was another one I had never seen live before. And I was 
doubly impressed by how insanely good and powerful she still was. Yep. Helmet just blew my socks off. I was like, I can't believe I never got to see these guys. You yep. know, I, I got to see Nine Inch Nails when they uh, toured with Bowie uh, back in the day, but I never got to see somebody like, you know, Helmet or something like that. And, just, and like, Helmet's going out again this fall. There's a, you know, I've been, uh, been collaborating a little bit with uh, Al Jorgensen from Ministry, who actually lives oh. down the road from me. Oh, and, cool. uh, you know, Ministry has never taken their foot off the gas. Like, they are still no. at it and yeah. still cranking out records and playing awesome shows. And Ministry's going to go out on tour this fall after, hopefully, after COVID's well and done with. Right, right. Um, with Front 242 and Helmet. So that's, that's right. I did see that. Yeah, I I talked to um, Chris Connolly recently from mm -hmm. Revco, and I have my fingers crossed to, to hopefully. I've interviewed, I interviewed Paul Barker years ago, uh, and I just interviewed uh, Elon uh, from Nine Inch Nails uh, a few weeks ago. So it's like I'm really big into into all that kind of stuff. So. I'm hoping to be able to talk to Uncle Al at some point. Who uh, he's awesome. I love Al. <laughs> you know, he's had he's he's had a lot of different phases in his career and his life, but like he's such a smart and well-read and worldly guy. If yeah. you can get past all the the cartoon character of Uncle Al, like he's just a great dude, and I'm I'm so happy that he lives just down the street and knows where all the good Mexican restaurants are. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, um, is there anything I, I, I'm forgetting? Is there anything you need to talk about that, that I'm leaving off or, you know, or, or is no, I mean, that's a, that was a good, it's in the not, not can be discussed range right now. Correct. There's a few things in the offing, but until, until the press release comes out, I'm going to keep my lips shut, but Might it was well. great that you, you know, had uh, the, a similar reaction to seeing Chris Rock in other non-comedy roles because yeah, you know, it's one thing when you see Sam Jackson's going to be in a Saw movie, you know what you're getting with Sam Jackson for right, sure. Right, right. And it's, it's, he's a badass and it's awesome, but it's, yeah. it's, it's very cool to see Chris Rock, like stepping outside of what people might normally expect from him. And, uh, you know, it was, um, I was amazed and surprised and gratified that he's a fan of the franchise and wanted to get involved. So like, yeah, this could be a whole new thing now. Yeah, a couple more weeks, and we'll see if it, if yeah, it works yeah. or not. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, all right, well, it was a quick wrap-up. Um, we were talking with Charlie Clauser, who's composed uh, the soundtrack for the upcoming Saw film, Spiral. Uh, it's the ninth entry in the series, which is insane. Uh, Lionsgate must be just, you know, drooling at the prospects of, of what the box office may bring, I'm sure. Uh, well, again, Charlie, thank you very much for taking the time. It's a real pleasure to have gotten to talk to you. Uh, excuse my couple faux pas on on uh, information. Right. I, I thought I had I thought I had that information right. I, <laughs> I must have got it transposed in my head, but uh, it was a real pleasure. And thank you again for doing this. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, anytime, Brett. That was All fun. Right. All right, take care, man, and stay safe. I will. You too. All right. Good day. Bye. <laughs>